welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I've got big magazine stories out now from my reporting trip to Leeds United on the three Americans there. And very soon, another story interviewing migrant workers on my trip to Qatar. So subscribe now and help me continue doing cool stories like this that you're not seeing anywhere else. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham after a busy soccer weekend. Witty, how are you? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm exhausted. These weekends are with games going in Europe now and obviously in MLS and and I'm not even calling games like you are. How are you holding up? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, Yeah, it's weird. I give like a very imbalanced amount of my time uh, to games that I'm calling. So uh, I, I will say like Part of the prep process for me is having like Premier League games on in the morning and then La Liga in the afternoon while I'm finishing my prep. So uh, I, I just love ingesting it all. In some ways, it kind of gets me in the mood uh, to, to commentate a game, to hear other people commentate games. It's, it's the best. I will say this, like, and I tweeted this last night, your goal calls were awesome in the Inter-Miami win over New York City. And your working with Ray Hudson and it's awesome. It's just so freaking cool that you're getting the, the chance to doing that. You're, you're grabbing this opportunity with both hands. And I, I was just absolutely thrilled to, to hear how that all came off. How much adrenaline do you get going in a situation like that? Quite a lot, quite a lot, especially you mentioned working with Ray um, in particular. I, I love like the hour before the broadcast and when he's just like, did you see what happened to Milan today? Like it was it was like just it, it's it's the best to just talk football with him. But um, yeah, like experiencing like, so so much of it. You, you're thinking about you, right? I'm thinking about what I'm going to say after goals and 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 thinking about, you know, what all my prep process, making sure I'm not over giving information and over talking and doing too much radio commentary and all that stuff. I have all these things going on in my head. But then I have the very distinct pleasure of listening to the person next to me uh, do his thing that so many people comment on. I had a friend who doesn't actually watch soccer very much. He flipped on the halftime highlights and texted me four things that Ray said just doing the halftime highlights. Like, I, I guess you sort of take for granted that most people that listen to this podcast and that watch soccer in this country know Ray Hudson. But imagine hearing that for the first time. You're like, wait a second, what? And it, and it, he's, it's just wonderful. He's the very best. And uh, there aren't that many people that have called games with him. So to be in that limited group um, is a distinct pleasure. The other question I've got is how long does it take you after you're done with a game? Like, let's say you're even home last night afterward how long does it take you to like dial it down so that you can actually sleep i went to sleep at 1 30 in the morning to, to, to answer your question uh yeah i i went out for beers after the game too but then i got home and then i just like i wanted to watch the highlights from the other games like i didn't have i didn't have it in me to just go straight to sleep i was also so our booth at driving stadium does have the window open so i was also like drenched in sweat because it is still hotter than hell in South Florida. So, yeah, I was sweaty. I went and had beers. I got, you would, th- it's like all of the components for just going home, hitting the bed, and going straight to sleep. But no, I, I like, I was watching Austin FC highlights at one o'clock in the morning. That's what I was doing. Which were good highlights against oh my Kansas God, City. Yeah, great, great comeback. Game. I mean, I will say this. So, my wife is also a journalist. She has been on a two week trip to Asia to do reporting over there. And so, it's just me and our dogs. And 
we have been watching so much soccer. It's crazy. Like I have either been writing my Leeds United story for which I, I was way up past midnight on Wednesday and Thursday night last week and just was dead by the time that 5,000 word story was done. But then once I had recovered, um, especially my Saturday and Sunday were spent watching lots of games. And in Granted, it's a good time of the year with the European League starting. You want to be able to see teams early in the season to get a sense of what they're bringing to the table, what's new, what's working, what are the storylines. Because if you get that base in, I think it helps to be able, even on this podcast, to talk about things. Um, and then last night, so Saturday night, was the first sort of free night I'd had by myself to watch all the MLS games for an evening, except I will say this, and I did tweet about this. I subscribe to a bunch of streaming services. So I'm able to see almost any team that matters in the world. I also subscribe, I'm a cord cutter, but I subscribe to YouTube TV. And because of the blackout situation for the Red Bulls in New York City, um, and because I have YouTube TV, which does not get Yes or MSG, the only two teams I can't see are in my own city. Because <laughs> I actually was trying to flip to your call, yeah. the game of Miami, New York City, and it said blacked out. Oh, my God. That, that, yeah, that will fortunately change after about 10 regular season games. And now all you have yes. to do is just buy an Apple TV subscription and you'll be good to go. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that's that's really frustrating. And that is sort of the frustration that I think, you know, there's been a overall reckoning when it comes to streaming and in the business sense and in the entertainment sense where you'll see, you know, what's going on at HBO Max where they're cutting a bunch of their workforce and Netflix has gone through it in terms of having some stockholder scrutiny and uh, Paramount and Peacock and everyone is is facing the scrutiny. And now I think consumers are making choices. In some ways, it was kind of a golden age to be a streaming consumer until about a year ago. And now it's not going to be anymore. And so those choices are going to have to be made. But regional sports is another one that is going to be really fascinating going forward because Bally Sports, who own uh, the, the majority of these rights, are trying to start their own streaming service. I think it's like $30 a month wow. uh, for some sports fans to stream in their local markets. And if you do the math on adding everything up together, you might not get everything and it might cost you more. And that is not the best experience. But uh, yeah, that that is really tedious. Thankfully, a lot of teams, including my own Inter Miami, we play on over-the-air stations. So it's a cool way from, from an exposure standpoint to get your product out there. I like teams that are on local TV stations because it allows you to draw new fans, people flipping channels, people that have antennas uh, can, can check out the game. I did use my antenna over the weekend for three separate games. So over the air, I watched... Um, Barcelona against Rio. I watched, what was the... Um, Brentford, Manchester United was the... the Brentford, Man United game, game yeah. before that. And then I watched on Telemundo on Sunday, hmm. Chelsea Spurs, which was over the air on Telemundo in a way that it was not in English on USA. And so I, I actually checked. There was a 25-second streaming delay if I wanted to watch it in English on my streaming. And so I was like, I'm just going to watch it in Spanish and be able to tweet in real time which is kind of an advantage. 
Yeah, for for us that like to to double screen it where you're following on social media, I always choose the antenna option. I actually I ended up watching a lot of U.S. men's national team games on either Univision or Unimas or even on Telemundo when the when the games were on were on the road, um, just because you have that live advantage. I, I always like to be as live as possible. Although, uh, by the way, word to the right, word to the wise, if you are a television consumer in any way, it is worth spending the thirty five dollars on Amazon for an antenna. Uh, you get it for life. You don't have to pay any subscription fees, and you get the most live product possible. If you're an NFL fan, it's like an obvious one because all the games on over the air stations. Uh, but it's it's such a it's such a wise investment because you end up being live. But it, it's sometimes irritating because if you're texting friends, you are definitely going to be ahead of your friends, and you will annoy them at some point. I, I, I don't want to give people spoilers, you know. But, especially but you, on, like, you almost goals. do though. You almost do though. Although, like sometimes there are people at the stadium. And clearly their entire goal is, let me ruin this with people that follow me on social media, because like the second the goal flies in, city 2-0. And it's, it's like not even like what happened. It's just it's just to put on Twitter that a goal was scored. I, yeah, that's lame. I, I did learn long ago, if I'm ever in the stadium and like there's a penalty kick shootout, do not tweet penalty by penalty from inside the stadium because people will hate you. <laughs> you don't want that. Well, but sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's fun to annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into the games. Um, crazy games this weekend. A couple of just truly wild ones. And let's start with Chelsea 2, Spurs 2. And somehow Spurs gets a point out of this at Stamford Bridge with the last second goal from Harry Kane. And Chelsea totally outplayed Spurs. Um, on both Spurs goals, arguably could have been removed for various fouls, hair pulls, et cetera, <laughs> that took place beforehand. And then the coaches basically scrapped. Um, and Antonio Conti and Thomas Tuchel, multiple occasions in this game went after each other. Both get red cards in the end uh, after the final whistle. And just some first-rate entertainment, right? Oh, th that was pure Premier League. That is everything you want. I, I'm surprised that, I mean, maybe it was said at some point, but great advert for the Premier League feels like something that was said by a commentator somewhere around the world today, because that is very much what it was. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. So I think when you deal with the two Spurs goals, in some ways they are the flashpoints in the game. And by the way, it's the reason why content too, I don't know if like it, it was brewing before this, but really the first incident where it kicks off is the first Spurs goal when Rodrigo Betancourt uh, clearly fouls, I forget who, for Chelsea. and Havertz. Yeah, Havertz. And, and it wasn't called. And the aftermath of that goal is when is the first time they get in each other's faces because Tuchel is presumably screaming at fourth officials at, the, at Anthony Taylor on the field. And, and in the end, the goal gets given. So I have a very um, strong view when it comes to like complaining about officiating. I think it, it, it for me, is such a loser's lament that <laughs> if you can't figure out how to defend the 13 passes that came later. And Jorginho gives the ball away in his own area that directly leads to the goal. Like, I think you sort of lose the right to be able to complain about the officials. Same with what happened with the Mark Kukurea decision, which is his hair gets pulled down in the area. <laughs> By the way, which is funny in and of itself, because his hair is really the only thing that you know about him, given that he arrives from Brighton. But even in, in so it goes to VAR. The only way that VAR gives 
that penalty or, or, or gives anything in that instance is if they determine it to be a red card. Right. And I honestly don't know. It's one of those gray areas of the game. If someone gets pulled down by their hair, is that a red card? It seems like a violent act, but I, I don't know. And so unless you think that's a red card, you're hoping that the referee sees it in real time. Kukurea complained afterwards, but clearly the referee didn't. And so then you have to defend a corner. If you just defend a corner, you win the game. It was the last kick of the game or the last header of the game. And so for me, I don't like complaining about officiating. I will say, though, Grant, I don't know if you know this, but this particular referee, Anthony Taylor, has previous with the Chelsea fan base. And I am plugged into it, having worked on a Chelsea podcast for two years. They hate Anthony Taylor. And there have been a couple of very high-profile high games, and they remember, in, they will give you the accounting, incident by incident, of the times that Anthony Taylor has done them wrong. I only know this because I know Chelsea fans. So uh, this is a, a, another one to add to that, I suppose. I'll be straight with you here. Maybe we should get Christina Uncle to come on. But to me, that was a violent play by Christian Romero by pulling Cucurea's hair, pulling him down by his hair. And yes, red card, send him off. That's crap. I mean, I, that's just a terrible play. And, and if you have VAR, use it. Use it the way it's supposed to be used. That to me is a pretty obvious one. And so I, I can understand the frustration on that. I can also totally agree with your point, which is if you're Chelsea, defend well, don't give up those goals. You've outplayed Tottenham this entire game. You should win this game. And here you give up, you you drop two points at home against a, a real rival in the race. It, it's got to be terribly frustrating, but like, I don't have that much sympathy for Chelsea here. And, and also too, when it comes to the, the scraps between Tuchel and Conti, I feel like Tuchel was the aggressor. I, I you know, and, and yes, he was probably upset by the goals that were conceded, but you know, Conti afterward had, had this great quote. He was like, like, if you are aggressive with me, I will be aggressive with you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> I would not want to mess with Antonio Conti, by the way. Like, if there was no one to split up those those altercations. I think Conti would just destroy Thomas Tuchel. Yeah, I think uh, this whole uh, occasion was an advertisement for men are very emotional. <laughs> because, and even, by the way, it was the second time in the weekend that eye contact became a very big thing in British football. I don't know if you saw this clip uh, between uh, Jamie Redknapp and Gary yes, Neville that went viral on Saturday after the Brentford Manchester United. Look at me when I'm look at me when I'm talking to you. And that's essentially what happened after the game here as well. It was Thomas Tuchel saying, "Look at me, look at me in my eyes when you shake my hand. Look at me." And and that that was set an entire incident off between both teams. It was a very emotionally charged occasion. By the way, I loved loved Thomas Tuchel's celebration for the second Chelsea goal. It's <laughs> running right beyond Antonio Conte in in that instance because that is what he does obnoxiously celebrate all over the place. I love that from Thomas Tuchel. By the way, as long as you're mentioning incidents that determine the outcome of the game and where Chelsea could have won it by an even more, an even more convincing margin, that sitter that Kai Havertz missed. What a cross in from Reese James and Kai Havertz. If he puts that away, this is a completely different game. So, uh, yeah, th there are moments, although it, it's hard for me to make a pure argument on behalf of just go win it based off merit, overcome the referee when both goals are marred by poor to 
eh, refereeing decisions. I, I still don't know. I would love to hear uh, from some refereeing experts on whether or not uh, they, they think pulling hair down to the ground is a, is a red card offense. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm willing to hear both sides on that one. All I know is I was fired up after watching this game. Um, <laughs> actually, just you know, a great weekend for, for, for Premier League soccer. Because Brentford for Man United nil after 35 minutes is incredible when you think about it. Insane. And just stunning. You don't think that much will surprise you in this league. 4-0 Brentford over Man United. And, and just the, the constant camera shots of Eric Ten Hag on the sideline. Very meme-worthy. Cristiano Ronaldo losing his mind. <laughs> David De Gea melting down and absolutely incredible. And Man United, I, I haven't checked again. They're in 20th place out of 20. I believe so, because I think the, the teams around them were uh, West Ham and Nottingham Forest. They played each other. Nottingham Forest won, and West Ham only gave up the one goal. So, yeah, Manchester United, uh, rock bottom of the table. I suppose Crystal Palace playing Liverpool could potentially fall below them on goal difference. But, yeah, Manchester United end Saturday in 20th place. And that's why I loved, I loved Peter Drury's commentary for this entire game. Cause he basically just kept saying, what is happening right now? This is insane. And I, I just sort of love the symmetry. And I, I tweeted this, the symmetry of these two clubs in particular, sending Manchester United into their latest crisis because Brentford and Brighton, you talk to a lot, like you hear a lot of fans. Like Brentford was sort of like was the team when you basically are naming random football clubs in the UK. You're like, oh yeah, and oh we're, we play we played Brentford on a Tuesday night. That's essentially what Brentford used to be. Like it is so unfamiliar that Brentford are a team that matter in the grand scheme of English football. That is only a recent phenomenon that is maybe five years old, and that is because they have an owner who has gone about this has gone about club building in an entirely different way and has a top-down approach is recruited from all over the world has data and scouting systems and knows exactly what he wants his club to be and by the way the same for Brighton who you know were nowhere i think they used to play 70 miles from their home city they they didn't used to play in Brighton then they build a really nice stadium then they've decided to go on a journey of building out a team. They have a clear identity with Graham Potter. They recruit incredibly well. They are such a well-run football club. Brentford is such a well-run football club. And from relative obscurity, are now beating Manchester United and dominating them in the process. It's just so astounding that these two teams are in particular the ones that send them into yet another crisis. And again, the fights over the Glaziers and what's going on at this football club begin. But I, I, I do for a moment want to focus on how good their opponents have been in these two games. No, and that's a great point. I felt like it was important yesterday just to say, like, give some credit to Brentford here. You know, obviously, I understand where the focus is on Man United just totally imploding, but Brentford has played well. And yes, there were Man United screw-ups, but Brentford caused them in many ways. And then the counterattack goal that Brentford had was absolutely phenomenal. Just the way the whole thing was taken, finished, and, and they deserved what they got. And... I even had some Man United people say, oh, I felt good that we didn't give up any goals in the second half. And you're like, 
what? That's that's where we are at this point. <laughs> yeah, and and like it was also excruciatingly hot by London standards, and it seemed very clear that like Brentford were resting up for games to come. They had their three points in the bag, and they wanted to move on to what was next. Speaking of what's next, Man United, which has Liverpool next oh. week, <laughs> and I'm I'm reading reports now that on Sunday, instead of giving the players the day off. Ten Hag made them come in and run eight miles because that's how much more Brentford ran <laughs> distance wow. than they did. By the way, that is such a, a American PE High school teacher, football. Yeah. JV coach type of <laughs> move to do by Eric Ten Hag. Like, yeah. That is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't know what to say. I mean, like it's, I understand that he's in a rough spot, probably wishing he had stayed at Ajax wishing that they would get some new players in, but you're Man United and you have amazing talent at your disposal and you're getting waxed by Brentford 4 now. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that, you know, in any in either of these two games, they have more talent on the field. And so it's about how do you get to converting that talent into wins, into good performances and that's where I think in, in some respects, the Glaziers do make for a convenient meat shield because Derek Ten Hag has not figured out how to play this team. Even down to, you go back to the first game, plays Christian Eriksen as a false nine. In the second game, plays him as a regista deep-lying playmaker. Like, that is not someone who has his team figured out. I understand he's trying to, you know, work about solutions and how to, you know, figure this thing out, but he's very clearly probably overcommitted to getting Frankie de Jong to Manchester United and basically needed Frankie de Jong to implement his style of play. And without him, he's trying to figure out how to you know put this team together. But at some point, you have to have a plan B. And I don't think that plan B can be playing Christian Eriksen as a deep-lying playmaker and having a 5-9 central defender. Like, Lisandro Martinez is going to get it seems like every week, given the runaround by somebody, maybe in week three, it's Darwin Nunez is just going to go win headers over him over and over again. It can almost like pick a pick a striker on every team. Like, can you imagine Mikel Antonio running up against Lissandro Martinez in, in, in the center of defense? They have to figure out a way to give him some cover. And so Eric Ten Hag also has to come up with solutions. And, you know, he talks about after the game, I think he probably shifted the blame too much to the players and doesn't take enough responsibility for his role and never not really creating. You think about the only goal that they scored. It's kind of ugly. It was kind of ugly against Brighton the goal that they scored. They haven't played their way into a goal. And we saw that time like at times in preseason it was a complete expression of their ideas. I think they did, they did this to Liverpool. It was back to front and the play looked amazing. We haven't seen any of that. And he's talked about the belief and the confidence, go out there with belief and confidence. But if you haven't instilled it in the players, then again, you can talk about bigger structural issues at the club, but they haven't bought in yet. And I don't, I don't know if running them eight miles on a Sunday is going to get them there. But the thing that's so frustrating is Ralf Ranić tried his own his own style, and it just completely dies at the door of Manchester United. Jose Mourinho tried his style. Louis Van Gaal tried his style. They all just die a slow death. These people who have great philosophies about the sport can't get this group of players to do that. I don't know if it's their fault, the players' fault, the club's fault, but it's just so sad to watch. We're almost at the stage where I'm hoping again that these British 
media outlets will send their people over to Tampa so that they can doorstep the Glazers in the parking lot again. They've done this a couple of times over the years. And I think maybe a threshold was crossed again over the weekend where they're like, oh, got to send our guys over to Tampa for the parking lot thing again. I, I can't wait for the Athletics takedown of Manchester United. It happened. They are they lead the league. I don't think there's a beat that they cover better than shit going wrong at Manchester United. They lead the league in pieces. I don't know where their sourcing is, but last year there must have been 15 pieces about how Ralph Ranick didn't get through to the players. Like I felt like I read that story every week from the Athletic, and I feel like we're gonna we're we're gonna start to get something similar pretty soon here. I, I'm curious because I think we may have mentioned this before that like. Rangnick actually got to a point where he started saying to people, why don't you ask Jesse Lingard? Like he was basically openly like saying, I think Jesse Lingard is your source on everything that you're running. And he's no longer there, obviously. He's in Nottingham Forest. So that's an interesting one. I will say this. I'm 99% happy for Brentford fans, but I am not 100% because they booed Christian Eriksen yesterday. And it's weird, wasn't it? That's really uncool. This guy almost died. He comes back and does a lot of good work for your club. And okay, he goes to Man United, but don't boo him. What are you doing? Right. And the and this is going to sound harsh, but the only reason why he went to your club is because he almost died. Right? Like in in any other universe, does Christian Eriksen play for Brentford? Any. No. And like, I, it, that was a very strange one. I don't know if there was like something he said in the media about Brentford or, you know, left them at the altar because he committed to coming back. I don't know why the Brentford fans were upset about that, but I completely agree. It's like, wait a second. This is like the most lovable man in football. Like how, how is, how is he being booed by his former fans? By the way, without Christian Eriksen, I'm not even sure Brentford stay up last season. Right. Like they were, they were in a bad way before he helped turn them around. So I completely agree with you. I thought that was very harsh. Other Premier League games I want to get into. Southampton 2, Leeds United 2. And do you realize, Chris, how close Jesse Marsh, Tyler Adams, and Brendan Aronson were to being on six points and really should be on six points after two games? They would have been with only Arsenal and Man City on six points of any team in the Premier League. And they fritter this 2-0 lead away over about a nine-minute period starting in the 72nd or third minute to Southampton. And it's it's got, you know, I know Jesse Marsh is trying to be a, a glass-half-full guy. We got a point out of this. We're on four points for a team that was in the relegation battle. This is a great start to the season. I agree with all of that. But, you know, also, too, I, and Marsh addressed this after the game, no second half subs until after they'd given up two goals in that kind of heat with that kind of pressure that they try and put on teams. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, he sort of said, oh, we'll self-analyze. We'll figure out if we made any mistakes. You can also blame the fact that he had to make a first half sub. So you'll lose one of those substitution windows. But that just it just feels like a game where after 60 minutes, you make subs almost no matter what. Even if even if players are playing well, just because of, in particular, the style that they want to employ where... There are moments where I am completely astounded by Brendan Aronson's work rate. Like, how does he continue to sprint at the rate that he sprints in that heat after 85 minutes? And, like, he finds second and third gears. It's unbelievable. But given the way that they want to play, it feels like they should have just made two changes for the sake of it after an hour and use all their subs by the 75th minute to get fresh legs on. In both games, they've had really bad periods, and that's the thing that, if I were Jesse Marsh, I'd be more concerned about in the long term is in the in the game against Wolves, 
I would say from about minute 55 to minute 70, they were completely outplayed. And the same thing kind of happened here where I'd say from minute 65 to minute 80, they were completely outplayed. And then they sort of eventually gained their foothold, could have maybe had a chance to win at the end. But um, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot to be positive about. I will say the fixtures are very kind. You're probably looking at Southampton, given the business that they've done, Wolves, given the business that they've done, are probably teams that'll finish in the bottom eight of the Premier League. So I haven't seen them play a top level side and if you can sneak away with six points of the 40 you'll need to at least stay up, uh, what what a start to the season that could have been. But I feel similar to Jesse Marsh with a fairly positive outlook at the end of these two games. Yeah, Rodrigo gets both goals for Leeds United, puts him up 2-0. And finally, we also saw an example. Jesse Marsh is really known in his staff for their set-piece preparation, the amount of time that goes that they spent they spend on it and prepare for it. That goes all the way back to when he was with the New York Red Bulls and some really creative set pieces and routines that they do. And they do get a goal finally off a set-piece uh, corner kick. Um, and then Jack Harrison had a nice cross in. Um, so, you know, look, Aronson and Adams, I think have gotten off to a very good start in the premier league, uh, overall, and they're clearly uh, a great fit for the style of play that Jesse Marsh wants to, to use. I hope, uh, y'all get a chance to read my story that I published on Friday about Leeds United. Cause I feel really good about it. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff that I learned that I'm trying to share with you in the, in the story there. Um, and appreciate the the access that they provided uh, for what I wrote. And they've got Chelsea next week, minus Thomas Tuchel, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, what's funny, though, is, is that if you're thinking of Premier League managers who have dust-ups on the, the touchline right at the final whistle, Jesse Marsh is probably near the top of the list and actually did have one with Bruno, uh, like Bruno Lage, like right at the start of or after the, the first game. Yeah, no, and Jesse Marsh feels like someone who uh, is one person in press conferences and is very collegial and is is, is very uh, is very nice man, but feels like you know between the white lines, there's something that changes about Jesse Marsh's personality. So I feel like his dust up with Bruno Lage will not be the first one that he has this season. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of a theme, I guess, mostly with Man United. Uh, about teams that have so much money that uh, are struggling. And so I think there's I, a lot of folks find some I don't know, joy or at least righteousness that the teams that have so much money aren't always doing the best. Barcelona nil, Raya Vallecano nil to start the season in La Liga, I think is somewhat similar there, where for all of the controversy about what Barcelona has been doing this summer and how risky it is for the future of the club and potential bankruptcy down the line and how just shady it is to try and force their current players to take pay cuts while spending so much money to bring other players in uh, and how that just seems wrong. We all sort of agreed that at least on the field, this Barcelona team could be really, really good. And they weren't really, really good <laughs> in their opening game. Nil-nil draw at home against Rio. And just not great. And I saw them at Inter-Miami, and albeit it, it is against MLS opposition in preseason, but they seemed like they had their patterns of play pretty well figured out. And they looked incredibly sharp to my eye uh, on, on that day. And I do think that 
inserting Robert Lewandowski in there last minute has completely changed things. And he is someone who, while an incredible goal scorer, will change the nature of how you play. And so I think they will take some time to get used to it. I do find interesting, though, what you mentioned about Barcelona and kind of how their narrative changed. I actually found found them sort of lovable in their aftermath of trying to pull themselves out of the economic devastation, out of losing Messi. You know, the new president takes over and tries to figure out everything that was screwed up from the regime before him. And they were kind of building piece by piece. They gave a lot of academy players a run out and Gavi and Pedri are now central to their midfield. And there are other young players that they brought in and they were kind of going to build something for the longer term. When Xavi came in midway through last season, they played pretty well towards the end, but I sort of find them immensely unlikable now as a result of everything that they've done in this transfer window, just completely inventing money out of thin air by mortgaging the club and I just sort of look at their team on the opening day and go, you really did all, you pull all these levers, which is the the meme about Barcelona. You pull all these levers for this? Like Andreas Christensen and Eric Garcia, the center of defense on the opening day. No offense to Andreas Christensen and Eric Garcia, but like, again, what are you going to win with that group? And you'll improve. There's no question that they'll improve and get better, but it seems like they're embarking on this project to go and get money so that they can go win big things and restore Barcelona to their glory. But I feel like they probably would have done better to have done this more sensibly, to have sold Frankie de Jong and then, you know, figure out a way how to reinvest that money and then, you know, piece by piece try and put this thing together. But it's almost like all these people that have gotten them through this transition period, albeit it has not been a successful one, but it's been one where at least the whole thing didn't go to hell. They're like, all right, thank you for these 18 months. Now get the hell out of here. You know, Pierre-Emerick Pierre Aubameyang was there for like six months and now they want to get rid of him. Like it's so transactional and gross. And I, I don't I don't like Barcelona at all. I'm kind of like as much as, you know, Xavi and can probably bring back that Barcelona style and flair back to that team again. And maybe it'll ultimately be successful. But their, their business dealings this summer have, have left me cold. I, I am with you on this, and I, it's kind of like a heel turn by Barcelona as a club, and also even by Xavi, who's one of my favorite players of all time. I always I loved interviewing him when I got the opportunity to do it. I loved the way he talked about fighting for the soul of football and, and the way that his Barcelona teams played as opposed to basically the Mourinho teams of a decade ago. And you really felt a, a kinship with Xavi back in those days. And I had, he hasn't lost it completely, right? But because I think the worst parts of what Barcelona is doing now are coming from the people who run the club. But Xavi as well, a little bit of a heel turn in recent years, big Qatar guy, you know, like saying all these positive things about Qatar. And, and it, it's, it leaves me cold. Uh, and, and so there was a little bit of satisfaction yesterday watching Barcelona drop points at home after the summer that they have had. And who knows? I, I think it's very, very likely they'll finish in the top four and, and, and also be better than they were last year. And, and we'll see. They got a lot of games to go. But uh, there was a, a bit of satisfaction there uh, to see them fall flat against Raya Vallecano. Um, let's move to MLS. Um, because this was a very busy weekend in MLS. Things are, are really getting into the playoff race post-All-Star game. And the most fascinating team in the league for me is Toronto, because Toronto wins again, Insignia scores again, and they beat Portland 3-1. to one. 
and they're not in the playoffs right now. In fact, I think they're 23rd out of 28 teams in the league by, by the standings. But honestly, I think they're going to get into the playoffs. And I think they are probably, if I had to pick five teams to win MLS Cup, or at least that could that have the best chance to win MLS Cup, Toronto would be in that five, Chris. Wow. That's a that's a big shout. I, I still think that they haven't been tested in that way. It's it's funny you mentioned their place in the supporter shield standings. So they're in twenty third right now. They're six points behind eighth. <laughs> that's just the nature. This league, like this this year of MLS has been an endorsement for parody. It, like this is the parody season of Major League Soccer. But to, to your point about Toronto, the only reason why I still have doubt, and look, maybe teams haven't done it well enough yet, but it just feels like defensively there's something to find against that team just because of who they play. Their, their rebuild their, their rebuild isn't complete yet. But you look at their front six. It has Michael Bradley, Jonathan Osorio, Mark Anthony Kay, Lorenzo Insigne, Jesus Jimenez, Federico Bernadeschi, and all of a sudden they are flying and they score goals and they're fun to watch. And Bob Bradley is an amazing coach, and he'll get this figured out. And it'll really come down to their six-pointers that they have left in the season, uh, the first of which is next Saturday against Miami. Miami currently above the playoff line, Toronto the below the playoff line. But they have six-pointers against Charlotte. They have six-pointers against New England, um, I, which, by the way, is actually their next game on Wednesday night. They played uh, New England at home. That's a huge one to climb up the table. So it really comes down to how they, how they do against teams in the middle. And if you think that they're a top-five contender to win MLS Cup, then you'd have to imagine they'll handle teams that are hovering around the playoff line. So that really is the doubt left at this point. I think if they had four more points on the board from their early season before Insigne and Bernadeschi arrived, I think they'd be in great position. But I still think that they have work to do, and I don't think it's very easy for an MLS team, besides LAFC right now, uh, to produce that level of performance every single week. I think Toronto are going to have moments where they wax and wane. I think heading into next season, you'd feel great about them. I really wish that they won the Canadian Championship. I know that's harsh on Vancouver, and that was a fun night for Vanny Sartini and that team. But, man, if Toronto had won that Canadian Championship, that would have been great because you head into next season playing Champions League football. It feels like next season is the season for Toronto FC. But either way, they can't get in the playoffs, but I don't think it will be as easy as you say it is. You're ruining my parade about <laughs> Toronto here, Chris. We'll see how it shakes out. They're a team that I enjoy watching right now. Very watchable team. And, and the, the Italians who've come in are not there for a vacation. They are playing. They are caring. And that's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I want to talk about the team you cover. Inter-Miami 3, New York City 2. Great goal calls. Miami <laughs> in the playoff realm. Do you think they're going to get in? Uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, so <laughs> for me, the thing that is so markedly different from their first two and a quarter or two and a third seasons in the league is that they're fun now. They're fun watch. And that was sort of the thing that was most promised, I would say, about this club is that they'll be a fun, they'll play attacking football, they'll score goals, they'll have dynamic players. And finally, we're seeing that. Alejandro Pozuelo came for Toronto. You mentioned that regime change. Part of that was letting a former league MVP go for $150,000 internally. Miami are there to pick up the scraps. What a turnaround from a roster building standpoint. And also you have to give a lot of credit to Phil Neville because he has had a mountain to climb at times with managing Gonzalo Higuain. And that's been a really difficult situation. It's towards the end of his career. It's been really frustrating for him. He didn't. Re I don't think he has trusted too many of his you know, creative teammates beyond his brother, Federico, who was there for the first year and a half that he was there. 
And now Alejandro Pozuelo has come in and completely gotten him on side. And you see a player, even though he doesn't score in the in the 3-2 win against NYCFC, provides an assist, created other chances, was a dynamic threat. The opponent had to account for him. And that's just not something that we've seen on a consistent basis from Higuain since he's been here. So they are fun to watch. In their last 10 home games, they've scored 24 times. They're starting to add a few more away from home as well. The question is, is can they defend well enough to get over the line? And that, you know, they, they still give away goals. They gave away four at home against Cincinnati. They gave away two at home against New York City in a win. And, you know, that, that really is the only thing holding them back. But at the very least, I love going to the stadium now. I love watching this team. They provide entertainment value. And I'm sort of really appealing to the people of South Florida. Like, come check this team out. It's really fun. Well, what's your sense of the fans down there? Because my sense of the Miami soccer fans has always been that they want to see really good soccer. And a lot of these people watch a lot of the games in Europe. Uh, There's a big South American contingent in Miami as well. Uh, They don't want to see a bad team. Like there's some MLS cities that are are very supportive of their team, even when it hasn't been very good. I, th- I think of Austin last year, you know, yeah. they still came out in big numbers. This year, obviously Austin's amazing. Um, Inter Miami though, I, I, I feel like there's been this real disappointment among soccer fans in Miami about what they've had over the last couple of years. Are they getting into this team now? I certainly hope so. I, I, I So for me, I agree with you. I think the first two years, first year, pandemic year, so you don't even get fans through the door until a certain point. And then when you do, you make the playoffs in 10th place, and then the the year after, you have sanctions, you have other things going on that don't make it terribly appealing. Again, the product was not very fun, and so... It's been it's been tough to get behind. You also have the fact that they don't play in Miami, um, which will be changing soon, but it is a factor as well. And now you've got a product that you can get behind. And by the way, I agree with you. It's actually one of the things that I love uh, doing the games with Ray Hudson. Ray Hudson points this out a lot. He says, this very knowledgeable crowd, the people that go know what they're watching. They applaud at the right moments. They get after the referee in the right moments. They even sometimes sort of appreciate what the opponent is doing in moments. And they understand that, you know, when Miami are not playing well, and I think sort of respond in kind, but now they have a really good home record. I think they're 7-3-3 at home this season, which is way better. Last year, they didn't make the playoffs because they didn't win enough at home. This year, they're winning a ton of home games. And I would certainly hope that in this stretch run that it's another entertainment option. The Marlins are completely anonymous and gone. The NFL and college football season will start. But I'm kind of hoping next Saturday, Toronto FC at home, you get Bernadeschi and Insignia through the building. Maybe some of those European savvy fans will recognize that and will give Miami a second chance. The thing that you know hurts sometimes is a lot of first impressions were you know big games against teams that you lose two nil, you lose five one, you lose four nil, and you know I always love I had a, I had a friend come uh, to the stadium for the first time on Saturday and loved it, and that for me is is such a huge thing. I think MLS in particular, the atmosphere is great and a full stadium is great, but first impressions are really important, and so I think the fact that you know Austin FC. Or have you know everyone coming through the door every game is because when people went to the stadium they really enjoyed it whether they whether the home team won or whether they didn't they really enjoyed it and I think this market it's a little bit more result dependent and so hopefully now that they're winning games hopefully they're competing I think you want to see that even higher level of competing to get for a home game or whatever but from my personal standpoint if they get in the playoffs has been a successful season I know you hate that logic in MLS but given where Miami started this season I think that is a totally fine bar for them. 
Last thing I'll say about Miami for now is Phil Neville thinks I've been overly critical of him over the last couple of years. Good job, Phil Neville. This team's playing pretty well lately. So <laughs> thumbs up. Uh, and then Chris Henderson, just great work. I mean, like just the sort of like one hand tied behind your back with these uh, sanctions from MLS and to, to do what he's been able to do, I think has been really helpful as well. So I'm excited for Chris Henderson, who's been waiting for a long time for this kind of opportunity to run a team uh, and have that kind of influence. So good for him too. Uh, I also want to talk about Brandon Vasquez, another goal for Cincinnati, which ties Atlanta to two And Cincinnati is a team that's doing well. And, and Brandon Vasquez is a guy that's doing well. And it's very interesting right now because it's so wide open. This feels just like 2010 ahead of the World Cup with the U.S. number nine situation being who knows? Who knows who it's going to be? And so we have some players who are making good cases and some who aren't as much right now. And even so far, I would say um, Ricardo Pepe's stock continues to fall. And I feel badly saying that because um, he got sold for $20 million to Augsburg. He's barely getting on the field. You know, Augsburg had a nice win over the weekend. And and you're seeing other players making a, a better case to go to the World Cup. And, and Brandon Vasquez is one of them. Haji Wright scored the game-winning goal for his team in Turkey on Sunday. Um, so there's there's things that are happening. And I'm wondering, like, do, one, what do you think about Brandon Vasquez? Should he get called into Greg Berhalter's September roster? And more so whether than should, what do you think Greg Berhalter will do? That's a great question. And I think I, I heard him interviewed by Paul Tenorio, and it seemed as though he was kind of giving the inclination that he was going to give Brandon Vasquez a chance in September. It's very late in the day to integrate a new player. And I think the, the one thing that seems clear is that Greg Berhalter sort of values traits as much as he values sort of the game in game out performance. Because if you were just strictly going off of form, you would also like there would be a much bigger conversation about Jeremy Ibobasi than than what's happening right now because Ibobasi has 14 goals, Vasquez has 15. So we're basically saying that in, in, in some respects, U.S. men's national team players that we haven't seen before always get more hype than ones we have. Uh, we've seen Ibobasi in and around the national team camp and didn't exactly set it alight, and so it's like all right, well, can't call him back in. It's sort of weird in that way. So I think Vasquez, the fact that he's new, and I think if you were to assess his traits, it would be great runs in the penalty area, which I think is something that Greg Berhalter has been looking for from a center forward. It's not really something that Jesus Ferreira offers tremendously well, albeit it's been better this season. He added another goal this weekend. He'll certainly get a call in in September, but it's about seeing if maybe Vasquez can offer something different. I would be really surprised if Brandon Vasquez started any of the three World Cup group stage games for the United States. For me, he would represent a different option or if he just somehow picks up Greg Berhalter's system on the fly and can build chemistry in six days with limited training sessions with his U.S. men's national team teammates, amazing. I think that's incredibly improbable at this point. And the strikers that we saw during the World Cup qualifying campaign will be the ones that we'll see in Qatar. Maybe Pepe, albeit he's going to have to play more. He's going to have to figure something out. But I think definitely Ferreira will start a majority of the games for the U.S. come, come, come the World Cup. And I do think it's important if we're going to have this discussion to say what you just said in the big picture, who's going to start up front for the U.S.? Jesus Ferreira almost mm -hmm. certainly is going to be that guy. I don't see that changing. I think that's where we're headed here. And so I know fans love to, to go back and forth about players who just 
aren't going to start, you know, and, and that's part of like arguing about who should, you know, be on a roster or whatever. I get it. But in the big picture, that's the most important thing. Who's going to start? But it does make me remember 2010. Do you remember who the U.S. forwards were? Yeah, yeah. It's I've, I've heard Edson, this. I've heard this comp brought Edson up. Edson Bottle, Robbie Fidley started. Yeah, Robbie Fidley, <laughs> and you know, Herc Gomez uh, had a, some influential games there for the U.S. Mm-hmm. too. So um, it is very 2010 reminiscent. Uh, but like Jordan P. Fox, another guy who I don't think is a great fit for what Burhalter's trying to do and hasn't played great for the U.S. when he's gotten opportunities like he had opportunities down in Mexico. Uh, and so it does become a fit thing. I think Greg Burhalter's system is a bit more complicated than most national team coaches. And so I think that makes it a little tougher if you haven't been in there before. Well, and also the the sample sizes are so small that you're being judged on these incredibly tiny windows where if you have one bad game, I think Jordan Pifak, did did he start the game in El Salvador in the Nations League or something like that? And and Berhalter said afterwards, oh, it was a really bad performance. And so he's not going to like, he might have ruled himself out, whatever. Like Like there are those moments where it's completely judged in these small moments. And like we said, even in some ways, national team managers get struck by this sensation where it's, well, I haven't seen the guy yet. Let's bring him in and, and see if he can he can change things up. Or as maybe you bring in a more steady veteran player like Ibobasi. Um, I'm just sort of cut like and Ibobasi has said by the way in interviews. I think yeah, I kind of know that I'm not going to be called in. I'm sort of made sad by that. Like wait, why? Why can't Ibobasi be called in just because he's played for the national team before? Like I always find that particular dynamic. Like what is the certain genesequa about a, a national team prospect that allows him to to get the call up and other players who are performing well don't I, to your prefog point it's a great shout because he's starting week in week out for a bundesliga team in any other kind of world cup cycle like holy shit get him in he's starting for a bundesliga team but he doesn't seem to fit this particular system and team i think also when abobasi wasn't included on the olympic qualifying squad back when they failed to qualify under jason christ I don't think Jason Kreiss is the only guy making that decision. Greg Berhalter mm-hmm. has an influence on that too. And Abobas, he's very well aware of that. So uh, I think that's something to keep in mind as well. But Chris, always great to talk to you, especially about weekends that were as busy as this one. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Mm-hmm.